0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: Radio brings you The Haunted Sea with host
0: Scott Martis.
1: Hello, this is Scott Martis.
0: <clears throat>
1: Today we have a special guest who has been on the program before, uh, my friend cryptozoologist and forensic investigator William McDonald. Hello, William.
2: Hey, good morning.
1: Um Glad to have you on, and uh, William is primarily known as being a consultant on Steve Alton's novel, The Loch* about the Loch Ness Monster, and is probably today's leading proponent of the idea that the Loch Ness Monster and other lake monsters are probably giant eels. And the significance of that with recent events is that there was a... Um, Uh, environmental DNA survey done on Loch Ness quite recently. And um, the leading hypothesis coming out of the environmental DNA results is that the most likely candidate for the Loch Ness monster is some kind of large eel. And the first person I thought of when I heard this news was William. So, William, you want to comment on all this?
2: Yeah, um, let's start with some basic histories and let's also talk about a little bit about basic apologies. Everybody associated with the production and the execution of this program today is suffering from some kind of respiratory virus and infections. Uh, It's 2020, winter 2020, and the flu season, the coronavirus, and everything else is killing people. I'm right now... In the most unlikely place in the world for an eel expert to live, and that is in the superstition area, central Arizona, Pinal County. Um, About as far away from uh, landlocked bodies of water that contains eels as you can possibly get. Skye is down in Florida, and our engineer is up in uh, the upstate New York, New England, or Pennsylvania area.
1: No, she's in uh, North Carolina.
2: Oh, she. Okay, so she's in North yeah. Carolina.
1: So okay. we're all, we're all so we're, in like a Bermuda Triangle here.
2: And we are all sicker than dogs, but we're doing this podcast because of the um, limitations of my schedule, for which I thank everybody. Uh, secondly, regarding eel history, uh, the first proponents of the eel as the giver, as the water dragon, as the monster of Saint Columba. Um, all of these uh, individuals around the sixth century AD. All of these uh, individuals. Um, it goes back to medieval France to um, the monks that were writing those one-of-a-kind books in France. And there was uh, water dragon monsters that were big enough to steal livestock in the Seine River. And in some of the other rivers in France That have access to the ocean And access um, All the way up uh, In the Germanies uh, Along the Rhine River uh, There were also stories of these Monsters and we know of at least Two species that are candidates For those kind of monsters One being a catfish and the other being A urine or meals
0: mm-hmm.
2: The most Logical uh, Candidates for Northern Hemisphere and even Southern Hemisphere lake monsters are anguilliform eels. Quite literally, your classic true eels that have pectoral fins, a dorsal fin, an elongated body, and a head that upon first glance uh, in profile is not that much different than a horse especially if observed in a the distance.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: They, they have a horse-shaped head until they open their mouths, and then you see that they have dragon-like jaws. Now, eel teeth are the same in every single species. They are sharp, they are barbed, and they point backwards. But in many of the species, they are tiny, and they exist in mats meaning that uh, they're little sharp barbs that are tiny that you cannot cut your finger on, but yet they will seize and hold flesh as effectively as having larger teeth like daggers, such as in the anguiliforms, that are most distant, which are your ocean-going moray eels.
1: And they have these teeth in the roof of their mouth called vomerine oh. teeth, too.
2: They do, but they also have secondary, distendable jaws in the back of their throats that can pull forward to seize the Mm -hmm. prey and pull it into the mouth even further, making it impossible for the prey to dislodge without impaling itself multiple, multiple, multiple times. Being grabbed by a moray eel, as any scuba diver will tell you, is about as hideous an experience as you can imagine Because once they got you, they got you, and you are bleeding like a stuck pig, and they're holding you, and they're trying to gulp you further in. (coughs) Well, there's the
1: there's the famous video on YouTube of the guy feeding a moray eel weenies, hot dogs, and it it bites his thumb off.
2: Exactly. Now that's not hard for them to do because. People have heard of crocodiles death rolling. Well, eels can Mm -hmm. literally motorboat. They can spin like a propeller, almost as fast.
1: Yep, I've seen video of them doing it.
2: And so not only do they have the sharp teeth to seize and hold, the digit, but they also have the ability to spin with such speed to create the leverage to break and tear the item off, which they then immediately swallow, making it Mm -hmm. irrecoverable. Um, the other thing you have to remember is, is that many scuba divers, in order to save their limbs and their lives, have had to literally cut the animal's head off because it would not let go. Yeah. And then they needed immediate trauma medical attention. Now, the anguilliforms in Loch Ness and in Lake Champlain are established facts. Their DNA is all through the water column. And they are known to be there, along with that very famous lake up in uh, British Columbia.
0: Okanagan. With, uh,
2: Okanagan, where I caught my first eel
0: <coughs>
2: at 10 years old and turned into a pet in a fish tank. Wouldn't be my last eel, but it was definitely my first. And that's when I noticed that they will go to the water's surface and they will gulp there the way snakeheads in Asia do Mm
0: -hmm. and the way
2: bettas do. And when they gulp the air, they dive. Mm -hmm. And their entire body rotates through the entire length of its body.
0: Mm -hmm. And the hump
2: that's above the water as it's rotating is moving laterally across the surface. If the animal is larger, there could be two humps, even three. Now, the, yeah. Scots, the, the Scottish witnesses, including the families from a number of the uh, Scottish regiments that I served with in um, the first Gulf War, they describe humps. Nobody describes a swan neck. Nobody. They describe humps, and mm-hmm. they describe snake-like motions in the water. Now, this is all
1: before you... Went over for sightings in 1993
2: Yeah That you when heard, I
1: first, first heard about this
2: And I also found a kill zone in 93 That I found again in 2005
1: Now this is near the Horseshoe Crag, right?
0: Uh, near a waterfall
2: It's going to be southwest of the Horseshoe Crag And Crag quarry,
0: Which mm. is another
2: rock slide area uh, in the Glendau region, you find a uh, waterfall that's running literally um, high up in the glen because Loch Ness is in the Scottish version of the Grand Canyon, and glen means canyon. Mm-hmm. And while it's smooth by both uh, retreating ice and wind
1: mm-hmm. and time... It's I think the... Um The Fault is like 400 million years old. (coughs) Carboniferous, Devonian, somewhere in there.
2: Uh, Further back than that. It goes... uh,
1: Ordovician, then. Silurian?
2: At least 500 million, years. Yeah. And that's when England and Arizona were slammed together.
1: One of these mountain building episodes. Originally... um, the continents slamming into each other There's a piece of um, Africa left In New Hampshire From the African continental plate
2: Do you know what the first land animals were?
1: Spiders I think
2: Scorpions uh, that Scorpions, okay the there you go And started catching Pollywog looking fish mm-hmm. um, That would migrate Through uh, mudslides um, From one tidal pool To the next Mm-hmm. Uh, and that um the first land life occurred in what is now England and Arizona simultaneously because uh the, the uh, prehistoric landforms that were uh England and Arizona were literally smashed together mm-hmm. and the fault is not uh in loch ness is not a splitting it's actually a compression fault mm-hmm. uh where landforms uh, came together
0: mm-hmm. and then were
2: carved out repeatedly by ice between 14 and 20 some odd times. Now, ice ages didn't exist until 2.5 million years ago.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And there's been 14 of them in 2.5 million years, with the average length of time being uh, between 150 and 250,000 years of span. Mm-hmm. Followed by approximately 11,000 years worth of global warming, which is known as an interstitial period.
0: Yeah, That's yeah, and what and we're, in the, yeah.
2: We're, we're in the 14th interstitial period right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I now, think you to seem
1: to think, that, that, think that, that this has had some effect on these eels, if you want to oh. explain that. I've, i heard you expound on it before.
2: Quite simply, the lineage of fish, bony fish that eels come from, true eels. It goes all the way back to the Jurassic. But 2.5 million years ago, a bunch of volcanoes pushed Central America up between North and South America, um, and the equatorial currents that had been literally circumnavigating the globe were suddenly had to uh, run north-south, which most famously includes the Gulf Stream, as well as the currents that um, are maintained in the trench that goes from the Aleutian Islands and all the way down California, Baja, California, where the seduction is. Mm-hmm. Um, and that created the four seasons that we understand today. Differences between summer and winter and between spring and autumn were much uh, reduced as far as noticeability until the coming of those volcanoes and the pushing up of the land bridge volcanically between North and South America creating Central America and the isthmus of Panama.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: That changed the world and forced um, some really intense fish evolution both in the oceans and it also created uh, some of the most famous fish in the world. Salmons, trouts, and all species of fish that are catadromous, meaning that they breed either in fresh water and then return to the ocean to live, or they breed in salt water and then return to fresh water
1: to live. And that would be the eels. The eels
2: breed in very exotic and hidden places in the not dead centers but in vortexual centers where currents form vortexes, <coughs> such as mid-Atlantic in slightly in the direction of the Caribbean.
1: What they call and, the Sargasso Sea.
2: And south and east of Indonesia, and in a number of other locations throughout the world where eels mm. swim. Now, North American species head east into the ocean, um, Northern European species head south, and they end up breeding in the same locations. But you have to remember there's about 6,000 feet of water column in that area, and each species breeds in the depth that is endemic to its particular populations.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's why
2: you don't
1: have any hybridization.
2: Well, there's some, but it's not a lot. It's very mm-hmm. subtle. And it's also good for um, um, genetic diversity, which maintains the health of individuals and robustness of the health. There's also species that are probably not yet identified because the leptosophilus is uh, when when a, a fish egg transforms into a fish fry. The average leptocephalus is between six inches and uh, maybe the length of a, a thumbnail.
1: They and also they call they, them glass seals because they're transparent.
2: They're very transparent. But when you find some that are over six feet long...
1: Yeah, well, like the one you, off uh, from 1930 from the Dana Expedition.
2: Exactly. So when you have a yeah. leptocephalus that's that big... And that means you have a much larger species that is shoaling in the ocean, and some of them may be ending up in fresh water, and maybe some of them aren't. Mm -hmm. So that's one possible origin upon occasion for a lake monster in any body of water, no matter how deep into any continent, but does have access to the ocean. But most lake monsters are individual females. That were prevented from breeding, that for whatever reason were unable to return to the ocean. Now that happens quite commonly. So what happens to those individual females that are compelled to breed but they can't? They can't get there. Usually they shed their teeth, they sink to the bottom of their body of water, and they starve to death. Mm-hmm. But every once and maybe 200 million individuals, you get one where an older genetic code triggers and you get additional life bases. So instead of going from a leptocephala to, uh, you know, an elver,
0: mm-hmm. and then to a
2: medium-sized eel, which some eels can breed at three feet length, some can breed at six feet length. Well,
1: there's one stage called a yellow eel, right?
2: Yeah, that's, that's uh, right in between your elver, which is starting to turn silver from the yellow, and the leptosophilus,
0: mm-hmm. which is
2: the glassy version. Yeah. And they're estuarium, they stay in the semi-salty <coughs> water <coughs> until the elvers are about ready to turn into adult form. Uh, they stay in the estuaries. Mm-hmm. And they are part of the food chain. Uh, the storks and the herons eat them by, you know, the thousands and the millions. Migrating mm-hmm. uh, birds eat them. But the ones that survive, they end up in the lakes and then the rivers and and eventually in the high-altitude lakes. Yep. Now, eels thrive in extremely cold water. Yep. So... Uh, And they uh, will live up there. And here's where they get interesting. They continue to grow. (coughs) Most never getting past six, seven feet in length. Most not even ever getting there. And it's the same story in North America with the Anguilla rostrata, which is your classic American eel. Mm -hmm. Your classic European eel is anguilla-anguilla. You have a very similar species in Japan. (laughs) And in the Southern Hemisphere, you have the classic long-finned eels.
1: Yeah, they get really big anyway. They get six feet, I
0: think.
2: Now, they all have poisonous blood. If if you were to drink blood from an eel, uh, you would introduce a myocardial toxin into your body. That would kill uh, the the red muscle tissue in your heart. Mm. Myocardial uh, toxins kill the heart, the cells of the heart. Um, People uh, can die very quickly from drinking eel blood. But the way people eat anago is uh, when eels are prepared and the blood is drained and the animal is completely washed in salt or fresh water and the meat is prepared, and it's slightly cooked. Uh, that negates the, uh, the toxins from the blood. Mm. And then they're delicious.
1: Yeah, I like especially,
2: that. Shit. Especially with all the different kinds of sauces. Yeah, but yeah, the yeah. blood, raw blood in the eel is highly dangerous to mammals. So, anyway, we're jumping around a lot. But we're basically putting this out. Lake Monster's. Whether they're 55 feet in length Weighing over 8,000 pounds Which is the Giver stage As the French monks Would have you call them Mm
0: -hmm.
2: The Giver stage (coughs) Or whether they're slightly smaller And weighing less Those are additional growth phases And we believe based on um, bone evidence and from the famous Loch Ness tooth um, photographs, which I recovered, yep. um, those uh, show that these animals grow um, a new set of teeth as they go through the life phase, and they go into an extreme predator-type situation. Uh, where their teeth are now like the classic Moray eel teeth, meaning mm-hmm. that proportional to the gullet, they're large. And of course, they run the length of the vomer the bone, they run the length of the maxilla to either sides, and uh, throughout the jaw. Now, people have to understand, jaws, plural, is actually a misnomer. Your jaw is your lower mandible. Uh, mm. Your upper, you know, your your upper teeth project from the maxilla bones, and it's mm. the same with fish as it is in people.
1: Yeah. Well, one thing eels have in common with certain types of snakes is they can dislocate their jaw to eat bigger prey.
2: And they can. Than the size uh, of
1: their mouth is normally,
2: and they can spin faster yeah. than a crocodile. Mm -hmm. And they can twist themselves in the knots and untwist themselves again Just as good if not better than any species of snake you can think of
1: Now one, one feature of eels I'd like to touch on That seems to tie in with some of this lake monster business Is this idea of snorkels or horns Now I know some types of eels I mean we should explain that there's a double set of nostrils on the eels but some of the eels, the, the 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 back set of nostrils that are on the center of their snout sometimes can have snorkel-like extensions
2: that, that are called protuberances. Yeah. What happens with those is those are sensory organs for sensing. And when we say nostrils, we don't mean that they uh, inhale or exhale through them. Eels breathe through gills. Yeah, And they have a secondary breathing apparatus in that their swim bladder... Swim bladder
1: can function as a lung, too, yeah.
2: Mm -hmm. It functions as a rudimentary lung, which is why eels can crawl all over the land and even climb trees when they need to, or climb Mm -hmm. rocks. Like uh, the way salmon leap rocks, eels can climb like a snake. The thing that uh, those protuberances are... Is they are scent sensory organs. Eels have um, scent organs that are on par with anything that sharks ever evolved in parallel.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: <coughs> Remember, sharks are cartilaginous species. Mm-hmm. <coughs> and now, don't definition. the eels
1: don't the eels have electro sensors on their jaws too?
2: Absolutely. Um, Some of those protuberances function not only for smell but for electrical sensory. And you'll see the smaller ones that look like tiny buttons right uh, starting to project as tiny little buttons or little berries along the edge of the upper lip. Mm -hmm. And they uh, don't grow as big as the two at the end of the snout. And they don't grow as big as as the two that are up above the snout and closer to the eye.
1: Yeah, some of the ones I've seen on uh, what they call a harlequin moray eel look actually like horns in the center of their snout. They're so big.
2: They do, but they are still electrical and olfactory, meaning electrical sensors and scent sensors. Mm Mm-hmm. Why do you no. think uh, eels can oh. come from uh, a mile, two, three miles away in Loch Ness if you take a bunch of smoked herring in a, in a, in a cage and just throw it into the loch, and then you have a feeding mm-hmm. frenzy at 200 feet down in the you know, average 700, sometimes 900-foot areas of depth? Yeah. Because they could smell it miles away. Well, in Roy
1: Mackle's Nessie book, he talks about how you can get eels to crawl up on the beach with rotten eggs.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Now, Roy Mackel and there was a Professor Brown in the, in the, in the early 1900s through the 1930s, and then there was Roy Mackel in the 70s from MIT. They were all um, thick bodied eel proponents.
1: Yeah, I think Maurice Burton got on the giant eel bandwagon for a while before he decided to go with the plesiosaurs, and this would have been sometime in the 1940s, 50s.
2: Yeah, and then you got Adrian Schein, who still thinks that they're all a bunch of sturgeons.
1: Well, the, um, the Environmental DNA uh, survey found no evidence of sturgeons in Loch
2: Ness. Circles so, have absolutely been caught in Loch Ness, but what they do is they wander in from the sea.
1: Yeah, but they're not in there on a regular basis. I mean they thinking. Re-
2: you have to remember that Loch Ness is um, one of the top ten largest bodies of water. Fresh water by volume I think
1: it is the largest body of fresh water in the British Isles.
2: It is but it's it's in the top ten, the to top twenty in the world. Yeah. It, it, it is. Uh, it's got a huge. It's long and skinny, but it's deep. And Very it deep. deep. It's like a solid water.
1: wall of water. I mean, it's just vertical down. Hey, what, 750 feet at least, maybe now 900.
2: When you have seals that somehow make it in a lot less, or sturgeon, mm-hmm. there's not enough DNA in their bodies to permeate the water column the way that specific species are. Let's list for a second the species whose DNA was identifiable in the water column. For start, there was a bunch of tiny minnow-like species, minnows being closely related mm-hmm. to twelve. Yep. Then you had sticklebacks, yep. which are they're little fish with uh, little spines. Mm-hmm. Then you have arctic char. Now, this particular species of arctic char is endemic to um, the Loch Ness system and the lakes that feed via the rivers higher yeah. up, it's not found anywhere else in the world in that exact DNA configuration. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's of a, a huge genus of char that lives in the northern hemisphere, and they're in lakes and in semi-brackish water systems and in the ocean all over the world. Mm-hmm. But Arctic Star are in the water year-round, and they form uh, a foundational staple for uh, larger predators to feed. Yeah. Now, when, when you have uh, salmon runs every year, and you have trout runs every year, mm-hmm. where they run through the lock nest, and then up uh, all seven rivers. To feed in the Rock Nest, and they get up in the Lac and a whole bunch of other lakes that are higher up in the, the Grampian Mountains and in uh, the mountains north. And uh, they breed and everything, uh, or rather, they grow up. And um, they, they breed, they lay their eggs up in uh, those rivers and around those lakes. And then they die. Then mm-hmm. the babies come back down again
0: <laughs>
2: about six months later and they're run into the ocean to go grow up.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then now, years later they come back and start right. the process all over again. Yeah.
2: But it still happens every year because of successive generations. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you've got salmon, and the times are slightly off.
0: <coughs>
2: the salmons do their breeding runs, and then they do their evacuation runs out to the ocean as well. So brown trout are very famous in Loch Ness, as are the classic Atlantic salmon that everybody in the United Kingdom eats for lunch every day.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> there are
1: also pikes in Loch Ness You don't hear about them very much But they're in oh, yeah.
2: there And remember they're there year round And they eat the char yep. And occasionally the eels But Maybe far, the eels are
1: eating them too The big ones Of course Yeah.
2: Anyway what ends up happening is The DNA for the salmon and for the brown trout, and there's a version of brown trout where um, the population has uh, gotten a large head and is more predatory and is a little more vicious in its hunting, called mm-hmm. the ferox
1: trout. Yep, the ferox trout, yep. And
2: genetically, they're identical. They're like the wolf version of a dog.
1: I think they're cannibalistic, too.
2: Yep. Um, and And they're... <coughs> Very intense.
1: Yeah. Well, one question I wanted to ask you is: in Alton's book, you know, I mean, it is fiction. He he makes them very aggressive to where they're killing humans and stuff. But that's that's a, a fictional novel. How aggressive do you believe these creatures, the real ones in Loch Ness, aside from? the fictionalized version. How aggressive do you think they probably really are?
2: Um, white sharks, it's the hunger mechanism that triggers the aggression. Mm. They're hungry, and if you present a certain way, if you smell a certain way, yeah. Um, if they perceive you electrically, and in the olfactory, which is smell, and visually, because they have uh, extreme visual acuity, in, in murky water mm-hmm. Then well, come in, uh, They're, oh, they're going to snap at you They're going to snap coming, at you
1: Coming back to this idea Regarding the tooth and the deer carcass Now is it possible Rather than The Creature killing the deer That it was trying to scavenge a carcass That was already dead
2: um, That's always possible but um, the problem is the kill zone itself. The kill zone shows crushed bones that slowly degrade in a freshwater environment.
0: Mm-hmm. Freshwater
2: does not preserve bones. It dissolves them,
0: mm-hmm.
2: except when there's enough minerals, like in the cementes in Mexico, where mm-hmm. you can have a skull that's nearly 10,000 years old, and it's still holding together because of the mineral content of the cenote.
1: Mm. Well, logness has got weird water qualities anyway from all that peat coming into it. That's why the visibility is so
2: bad, you know? That that, uh, speaks to the pH of the water, which is acidic. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's it's several points below uh, 7. Uh, the water is acidic. It's not alkaline um, with the peat. Yeah. But the interesting thing is, and I don't know, unless you journey there, uh, the water that comes out of the tap uh, literally looks like pale urine. And that's because of tiny suspended particles of peat moss. Yeah, I've
1: I've seen videos taken under fairly deep down, not, not into the no light zone But where it's the color of whiskey
2: Okay If you're looking at the sun And I've been of it like this. If you're looking at the sun And you're looking up Through the water column at the sun uh, It turns the in the, city of the, sun, it turns it the color of, uh, of A good single malt yeah. However the, uh, When you're looking down In the water column after you've entered after you the water and you're just below the water and you're looking at the water, through the water, it's the color of avocado. It's avocado mm. juice color. Yeah. It's, it's the color of certain green olives. But the best description for the water is avocado color. It is um, one of those kinds of lakes to where every form of drainage begins and or drains through heavily embedded rocky areas covered in moss.
0: Mm-hmm, and the that's the moss, moss covers, yeah.
2: <coughs> and the moss covers the trees. And it, in the wintertime, helps to feed the, the herds of red deer that are actually genetically closer to elk than whitetails. And that's the European deer, where you get the classic United Kingdom stag.
1: Yeah, the red deer. Yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about is... And those is,
2: uh, you all managed for me.
1: One thing I wanted to ask you about is the uh, two guys you bumped into in 2004 that were walking down the road and saw something dragging on the beach on the other side of oh, the road. Yeah.
2: Okay. This is um in, in the foyer's area. Along the A eighty two. Um they were walking from a um, beachside community camp. And they were looking for a ride back to a party up in Drum the which is further to the northeast along the A-82. Mm -hmm. And um, as they were um, walking along the side of the A-82 in the deep twilight, because remember, that time of year, it's Christmas time, and um, you have about four hours of daylight. Of, of good hard daylight
0: mm-hmm.
2: And um, Sunset comes quick So The uh, average uh, Latitude by the way Rivals parts of Alaska mm-hmm. <laughs> Well that would make
1: sense because You know there's parts of Alaska That are go Dark for what six months
2: Well it's not that bad um, You know an average winter day, you got about six hours of daylight, but in December, approaching Christmas, it's closer to four, especially once the overcast comes in.
0: Mm.
2: But anyway, uh, these two guys saw uh, movement and texture in the the light, and it was uh, extremely large about um, as big as uh, a truck tire, and it was moving, and it looked wet, slick, wet, smooth, in motion, uh, and there was a whole lot of birch trees and brambles between them and, um, you know, that uh, that thick, thick brush between them and the thing that was below. mm mm-hmm. Now, it turns out that that's an area that was an old, old loading dock barge area, a combination of floating docks and barges. Uh, in the foyers area, that has basically rotted itself to the point where you can barely recognize the pilings as uh, in being in the pattern of a former loading dock barge area. That's um, away from the shore It's about 10 yards away from the shore It was in that general vicinity Now when I got there the next morning I found uh, definitely a slide area That had frozen over in the night But the mud was smushed And it was in a track that was similar To what you would see with a sidewinder snake In Mm -hmm. straight up sand in Arizona if you were to translate that pattern into the mud. And then the weight of the animal was so heavy <laughs> that it smushed down the drop to the rocks below where the, the water's edge was that was lapping. Mm-hmm. And as the animal was sliding down that, its weight smushed that area down as well, except to where the tree roots were able to withstand it.
1: Was there it's any indication? Was there any indication that the pectoral fins might have been involved in part of the locomotion?
2: Um, it's kind of hard to see anything related to the pectoral fins. We would assume that them being anguilliforms that they would have pectoral fins. But then again, you have morays that are anguilliforms and they have none yeah. whatsoever.
0: Yeah, I know
2: that, and they're amphibious, too. Where where the body, the heaviest part of the body is where the stomach and the intestines are.
1: That's the center of gravity.
2: And then uh, as the tail continued to slide, as the animal moved back into the water, and they said it wasn't a loud splash. It was more like the sound of a ripple, a continuous ripple.
0: Mm -hmm. As
2: the thing slipped very smoothly into the water Which would tell me that it was covered in slime And it was very slick
0: Mm -hmm. But
2: anyway Then we saw um, You know Everything had iced over and everything And I was not prepared And I'm so embarrassed by this But I was not prepared To grab up some of that uh, That muck Because I probably would have found eel DNA in it if I had taken samples, but I didn't have any pill bottles with me. I didn't have anything.
1: Well, the 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 team from New Zealand found it for you.
2: Yeah, they sure did. It turns yeah. out that lake DNA uh, in the lake, the uh, water column DNA samples showed eels above and beyond by volume. Uh, the eel DNA was heavier than uh, anything, but the uh, the trout.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. year. Yeah, well when the results came out, they had been hinting for weeks that there was one candidate that was still viable, but they weren't saying and they dragged it out for I don't know, 2 weeks. And then finally the day arrived last September and it was this nasty's probably a giant eel. I was like, "Yeah, okay. And the first person I thought of when I heard that was
0: you."
2: Well, I'm in law enforcement in the southwest desert and my wife is absolutely paranoid that I can get into a shitload of trouble as far as um, administratively with my department if I'm making a lot of noise about anything in the Mm -hmm. paranormal thing and so I have to be really on the download as far as here in Arizona as to what I do Yeah, yeah so the bottom line in all of this is, um, I follow um, police investigative standards of of um, and methods for examining evidence, gathering evidence, <coughs> and interviewing witnesses, and all of that um, as as part of my daily routine. Now you'll notice that um there's a TV show on right now that shows uh north northeast um uh, states like New Hampshire and Maine and their con- conservation cops and they're uh um, Yep, I know,
1: I know what you're talking about. Yeah.
2: And you'll notice that when they're talking to a deer hunter about uh the sequence uh, of the way and the detail in which he bagged his catch and They'll go into the snow and they'll look for the drag marks and the blood spots and everything else. Well, mm-hmm. we're no different um, where we work. Oh, no. <coughs> I don't get a lot of snow where I'm at. Mm-hmm. Hardly once in 10 years you might get a light dusting. And in the summertime, it's brutally hot. Mm-hmm. But it's the same basic principles. And I'm skilled at interviewing witnesses. And I'm skilled at putting... Um, uh, diverse patterns of data together, and looking for uh, correlations, common patterns and trends in uh, the data. And uh, I'm not a scientist per se, but I'm, uh, you know, a world class detective, and I'm a world class illustrator of mm-hmm. you know, my results.
1: Yeah, we'll use some of your uh, artwork for the slideshow that's going to go with this Good. program. You're... Good. Some from 1993, from the sightings, and, and then others are from the uh, concept art you did for Alton's book.
2: Well, most of my contributions were in 2002 through 2005, and now they've got a movie deal going. They've got um, a reissue of the lock, special. Which includes
1: your pamphlet that you wrote. As part of the well,
2: special edition, it's more—it's more than a pamphlet. He gave me 46 pages under my own name with my own table of contents, where they published verbatim uh, my entire report of investigation that they paid for in 2004, 2005.
1: Yes, I have a copy of that. In fact, I was reading it in pre- pre- preparation for this show,
2: which right. is why I'm right. asking
1: you some of these questions
2: yeah and that's perfect reference material because <coughs> that is um a slightly loose version of what would otherwise be a classic in uh, report of investigations um, mm-hmm. I was paid to investigate the natural history, the geology, and um everything related to um living cycles. Uh, Of the food chain within that lake
0: Mm -hmm. I was
2: paid to investigate the Templar history The uh, Knights Templar history of the region
1: Which Uh, ties in with the historical part of the novel
2: My own ancestors are notorious And are from a clan that is centered due west of Loch Ness in the inner and outer Hebrides Islands and the Isle of Skye We are uh, Clan Ronald We are the MacDonalds We are the sons of Donald and of Clan Ronald The MacDonalds are the most vicious, notorious clan in Scotland And uh, up around Quark uh, Castle and Drummond Rocket and Inverness uh, The MacDonalds are hated um, which was pretty funny because uh, I would show up and they would see it spelling on my name and they would go, oh, hey, what are you sheepshagging, are you? Well, you know what? Uh, in 600, uh, 600 years ago and going back for 600 years, my ancestors were um, literally stealing all the good-looking women from Ireland and from all the clans of Scotland along hmm. with all the good-looking livestock. Anything that was ugly, sickly, or or, uh, not up to standards was burnt. Well, I think the
1: ancestry of the Scots was Scandinavian, wasn't it? So they basically descended from Vikings, I think.
2: That came later. And what it was was through warfare and rape, their genes were absolutely... uh, Through warfare and rape, their genes were absolutely... um, infused into the the classic uh, ancient ancient Celtic. Uh,
1: kind of like the Neanderthals were absorbed in the Homo sapiens sapiens.
2: Well, we now know that uh, there's an excessive amount of Neanderthal DNA in the uh, uh, in the genes mm-hmm. of the tribal Picts.
1: You've
2: heard of the Picts.
1: Yeah, they were before the Celts, I believe.
2: Yeah, they were really, really ancient, and they were the last bastion.
1: In um, fact, there's some Pictish, uh, what do you call them, petroglyphs? Yep. Of water Is it's, it's even called the Pictish Beast.
2: That's true. Yeah. So between the the Picts of northern Scotland and northern Ireland, on the seacoast <laughs> facing the Arctic, and um, in the French river systems heading up into the Germanys, and you've got the same drawings and the same thing. These things are ancient.
1: You know, you um, know somebody who, who uh, documented a lot of what you're talking about was Ted Holliday. Yep. Yeah.
2: Why don't you tell everybody who Ted Holiday is?
1: Oh, Ted Holliday was a Loch Ness investigator in the 1960s and 1970s who came up with the idea that he thought the Loch Ness Monster was some kind of giant worm or slug-like animal, and he finally settled on the idea that it was a giant fossil animal called Tully Monstrum gre- gregarium, whose fossils yeah. have been found in Illinois.
2: Exactly, the Tully Monster. Now, yeah. the Tully Monster, as best as we can tell, is what's called an animal. It- Anelids are all your worms, all your leeches, mm. um, and that includes your spiny sea worms. Now, Which a can lot get pretty diseases. big. Now, the bristles on your sea worms are the source of many of the sensory organs that later evolved into um, uh, arthropods, you know, such as, you know, the hairs.
1: Mm-hmm, like you see on spiders.
2: And stingers. Um, bristle hairs, some of them sense electrical. Mm-hmm. Some of them are olfactory. They smell. Yeah. Some of them feel vibrations. Well, we
1: got about nine minutes left. Do you want to talk about the tooth?
2: Well, the tip quite simply is uh it's a photograph that was held in a human hand for scale. It was taken quickly it was images were shot uh with a camera that where you could use both film and where you could also take megapixel images um, I'm trying to remember what the megapixel image was in that situation um It was photographed in 2005, and um, the uh, guys um, found it in the kill zone area, and it was embedded into a deer carcass. Now, the carcass had been torn in half, literally. Uh, The spine was twisted. I found the carcass later on in the water, but the bones were still in good enough shape that I was able to look at the spine. The entire hind quarters were gone. They were missing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and all it only got fallen out or had been sealed. We
1: should explain it, to people there was a video shot around the time the, the tooth was discovered. I have a copy of that video. I'm sure you do too.
2: Yeah, But uh, whatever it was, uh, the carcass was violently torn in half. Now, was the animal alive when it was torn in half, or was the animal um, dead and, and torn up?
1: Well, that's kind of what I was hitting at earlier. Is there could have been a, a dead carcass that it drowned, and maybe possibly the animal brought it up onto the shore and then tore it in half. I don't know, you know
2: well, the problem is um whatever force was used to tear that spine it was rota- it was a rotational force mm-hmm. uh the uh insult to the spine where it disconnected was uh twisted and it was rotational mm. uh I don't think the thing uh drowned. I think it was seized like as if a very large African crocodile had grabbed it.
1: Yeah, I know what you're talking about. There's a recent video's been floating around showing a um crocodile with a deer carcass in its mouth swimming at the surface.
2: Absolutely, but um if you look at the big Nile crocodiles, which is the second largest species in the world. Mm-hmm. Oh no. The way they'll grab a fully grown wildebeest and drag it into the water and mm-hmm. start that swelling immediately. Yeah. That's, that is the type of rotational force that I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. I think the down down drink, and when I'm it was a 350-pound-ish female. And, um, you know, it was down there drinking and something snagged it. It was an adult female Elk doe. Now, mm-hmm. red deer is not called elk in the United Kingdom, and they are farmed and they are ranched. Our uh, kingdom of fife has huge herds, just the way we run cattle in Texas. Mm-hmm. But it's, uh, it's just uh, the incredible the amount of forensic bite force and the twisting forces to twist a spine apart. It takes an unbelievable amount of energy and it has to happen quickly. It's forces similar to when you jump out of an airplane, pull the ripcord, your chute opens, uh, you fall, and then you get snapped back. That's snap back. Oh, it's those kind of forces, but in a rotational way. Mm. Imagine yeah, it would be
1: extremely no, painful
2: if you were alive. Be, yeah, and it would also um, hopefully be quick. Uh, there had to be some speed involved. Yeah. But well, I've anyway, seen a
1: film of eels doing the, the body roll like a crocodile.
2: Exactly, and they, and they spin as fast as a boat propeller.
1: They think possibly, too, that the big pliosaurs may have been able to do that, too.
2: Okay, but I, I do not subscribe to any kind of predator like that uh, at the end of the lock because if they... Oh, no, I'm
1: just suggesting, you know, a convergent behavior. Um,
2: the lock is 42 degrees. There isn't a reptile on Earth that can uh, um, yeah maintain the population there. And besides, the Scots would have ate them. If they mm. were mammals or if they were reptiles, they would have been meat for the Scots.
1: Well, one last thing I'd like to add is that your kill zone is right around the corner from the Horseshoe Crag. There was a famous amphibious Nessie sighting that happened right near the Horseshoe Crag, the Torkoal McLeod sighting from 1960. Correct.
2: But remember, between the Horseshoe Crag and the Glendale Waterfall, where the kill zone is, mm-hmm. is a quarry crag. Mm. But distances don't mean a lot. And here's the other thing. Uh, Foyers River has these huge, huge uh, hydroelectric power plants Mm -hmm. uh, that's been around since the 70s. And it's got these large propellers, and uh, it's got three large pipes that run down from the Foyers River through solid rock to spin these uh, blades in order to spin the turbines. And everything empties out through a heavy, heavy, heavy grill um, mm-hmm. and the, the grills are spaced in such a way that scuba divers can't get through and that anything as strong as an orca killer whale can't smash their way through it mm-hmm. why does an exit port for water need a grill I mean I don't think the foyer's power plant was a target for terrorists I mean
1: so they're protecting yeah. against something
2: but well protecting against
1: something I wish I wish we had more time, but we're we're almost out of time. We
2: got oh, real quick. Two uh, minutes. I found lots of chopped up eels inside. Mm-hmm. They have to clean those blades, and mm-hmm. they will re- reverse. They'll apply power to reverse them yeah. to to back flush the pipes. Yeah. They found chopped up, sliced fish that you know, like pickle slices, uh, yeah. inside those things. And the engineers that I talked to. Um, In Brockla At a Christmas party Drunk off their asses And um, You know I interviewed them And my cover was that I was an ichthyologist From the Scripps Institution of Oceanography um, And uh, The University of California in San Diego Yeah And they were talking about uh, Chopped fish That would have come from Something huge So Anyway, um my best guess is is that uh whatever animal got chopped up in those things back in the nineties was probably fifty five feet long. It could have weighed between uh three and uh um, maybe eight thousand pounds.
1: All right, well, we gotta go now. I'm I'm sorry, I wish we had more time. Is there anything you wanna plug at the last minute?
2: You're... Um I I'm I'm laying low because of my job. All right. But, uh, uh, I'm. People can Google me. I'm well, it's always great device. to have
1: you on, man, and thank you for coming on, and uh, I'll be in touch.
2: Take care of yourself. And people can reach me through you as well, you and Julie Ray. Oh,
1: absolutely. Yep, definitely.
2: All right. Take care have of yourselves. A,
1: yeah, you have a good day.
2: All right. Bye-bye.
1: Bye.